Brothers and sisters, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. I'll be starting at verse 18 in chapter 12 of the book of Acts and reading through to verse 3 of chapter 13. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible Word. Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aid their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. So we'll be looking at Acts chapter 12, verse 25, and using it as a springboard to look at the fruitfulness of genuine Christian friendship and May the Lord bless us as we go through the history of Saul and Barnabas in their life together up to this point, and also take a look at some of the things they will go through together after this point in time. May the Lord bless us to consider more deeply what it means to be involved in genuine Christian friendship, and that we would be blessed to grow up in this regard. Charles Spurgeon said, and I commend this sermon to you about friendship from Charles Spurgeon. He said, friendship seems as necessary an element of a comfortable existence in this world as fire or water or even air itself. He he who would be happy here must have friends. And he who would be happy hereafter must above all things find a friend in the world to come in the person of God, the father of his people. Fidelity is an absolute necessary in a true friend. We cannot rejoice in men unless they will stand faithful to us. Solomon declares that there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. That friend, I suppose, he never found in the pomps and vanities of the world. He had tried them all, but he found them empty. He passed through all their joys, but he found them vanity of vanities. Poor Savage, the poet, spoke from sad experience when he said, You'll find the friendship of the world a show. Mere outward show, tis like the harlot's tears. 
the statesman's promise or false patriot's zeal, full of fair seeming, but delusion all. And so for the most part, they are. The world's friendship is ever brittle. Trust to it, and you have trusted a robber. Rely upon it, and you have, learned upon a, you have leaned upon a thorn. I, worse than that, upon a spear, which shall pierce you to the soul with agony. Yet Solomon says he had found a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Not in the haunts of his unbridled pleasures, nor in the wanderings of his unlimited resources, but in the pavilion of the Most High. The secret dwelling place of God. In the person of Jesus, the Son of God, the friend of sinners. It is saying a great thing to affirm that, quote, there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother, unquote. For the love of brotherhood has produced most valiant deeds. We have read stories of what brotherhood could do, which we think could hardly be excelled in the annals of friendship. So, hopefully this will serve as a framework for us as we're looking at the providential work of God and the relationship of Saul and Barnabas through the years and We'll see the foundation of friendship, the fruits of of genuine friendship, the the fruits of genuine friendship. Also, take note of the two goals, the two major goals of Christian, genuine Christian friendship, doing God's will, obeying him together, and number two, becoming like Jesus in the process. Obedience and sanctification mark true friendship, which ultimately is mutual loyalty to Jesus Christ himself. Love for Christ and finding Christ as the friend that binds true friends together. Jesus said if we are his friends, then we will be friends with one another. The the world does offer us counterfeits and we'll perhaps get a glimpse of some of those things as we look at the relationship between Saul and Barnabas which was not all roses and sunshine. There were disagreements and difficulties that they went through. And perhaps some of these counterfeit foundations of friendship perhaps were woven into their relationship. I don't know that for sure, but perhaps we'll see that. So let's move into it. You'll see that our outline will be, we'll look at Barnabas and Saul, and that'll be the longest part of the sermon. And then we'll see that they did return from Jerusalem And they did that after they had fulfilled their ministry. And we'll see that they brought John Mark from Jerusalem with them. And all of this has pertinence to their friendship and to the past and the future friendship that they would have. And then we'll look at some principles more closely displayed in this story of their friendship. So this text says, first, and Barnabas and Saul. So I'll use that as a jumping off spot. We're going to look at Barnabas and Saul in the book of Acts so far. And I've tried to do this with some basic chronological outline so that we can see the order in which God accomplished things in their lives. So first of all, approximately AD 30 or 31, Barnabas sells his land and gives it to the church. So we see Barnabas is brought in early as a, a part of what's going on in the growing church the same year or early in the next year that Jesus Christ ascended to the Father's right hand. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. We've read this multiple times already. We'll look at it again. 
Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common, and with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all, nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. So there's great unity here and fruitfulness in this church. And now Barnabas is given as an example of this. Verse 36, And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. <clears throat> so Joseph has its origins in the Hebrew for Joseph. This Greek word Joseph means exalted. And uh, the Hebrew Joseph is uh, he has added or he will add. And then Barnabas here, son of encouragement or son of comfort, son of rest, son of refreshment. And so we get a picture of Barnabas here. And who would you think is Barnabas' friend? We would say that Barnabas is friendly, but we see behind this, his ability to encourage and comfort is his love for Christ, for sure. His belief in the resurrected one who is at the Father's right hand and the comfort that he has received being made a friend of God through Christ. And we see that his goal is to serve God. His goal is to do the Father's will. This is... These are important things for genuine Christian friendship. Next, in approximately uh, AD 31 or 32, so about a year later, we see Ish, no more than, Saul approves Stephen's murder, goes on to persecute the church. So Saul is introduced to us, and his introduction is a bit different than the introduction of Barnabas. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. So this is when Stephen is martyred. We looked at that. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now Saul was consenting to his death. And we know that Barnabas was part of this church. Barnabas had been frequenting this church. We can't help but wonder if Barnabas observed Saul's behavior. Going on with Acts 7. At that time a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul... He made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Saul is no friend of Jesus at this point. He's an enemy of Christ and an enemy of Christ's church. So what happens next? Well, Saul the, persecute, Saul the persecutor on his way to Damascus, he meets Jesus. And he's converted, he's blinded for three days, and then he meets Ananias. He's baptized and his sight is restored. He becomes a friend of Jesus. Acts chapter 9 verses 1 through 9 gives us the account of him meeting Jesus, being converted, and being blinded. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So Saul's becoming a friend of Jesus. He calls him Lord, and being a friend of Jesus always entails calling him Lord and being caught up in the joy of his propriety in us, that we belong to him and that we will do his will. This is friendship with Jesus. He calls him Lord. Going on, he's blind, he's waiting. Paul, Saul, not yet Paul. This is Acts 9, uh, very next uh, portion with a focus on verses 15 through 19a. And that little break there between verse 19 is not intuitive, uh, but I think it's important. We'll get to it. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. You see there? Saul has a mission. Saul is a friend of Jesus. Being a friend of Jesus means doing what Jesus says. And Ananias, went, and Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. The next phase of Saul's life, most likely, is three years from AD 36 approximately through AD, or AD 33 through AD 36. And this is not mentioned in the book of Acts. Uh, three years of training by the Lord in Arabia. He mentions it in Galatians. And Acts does not speak on this. We learn of it, as I said, from Galatians chapter 1. Most likely the three years occur between Acts 19a and Acts 19b. So it's not the focus of this sermon. We're not going to go through trying to convince you of that. Uh, I do invite you to see a, a, an article by Pastor Kaiser, a conservative, Philip Kaiser, a conservative chronology of Paul with emphasis upon the correlation with Galatians. <clears throat> so then in AD 36, after the three years, likely, uh, Saul returns to Damascus, preaches and flees death, threat, death threats. So Saul is committed to doing the Lord's will. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who, were called, who, those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. 
So we see, again, Saul in his life acting as a friend of Jesus, doing the will of his Lord. In Galatians chapter 1, Saul gives us his description, and he's, of course, writing to the church at Galatia, and he is giving his biography, his history to this church. He says, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. And so we see that occurring next in the book of Acts in chapter 9, shortly after this. And what, what happens there? Well, this is the first time that we really see Barnabas and Saul coming together because Barnabas helps Saul gain, <coughs> gain the trust of the apostles in Jerusalem. Their common friendship with Christ begins to show up in their friendship with one another. Saul gives his testimony to the apostles. He preaches in Jerusalem, Saul at this time, and he flees again, death threats. Death threats. This time he goes to Tarsus via Caesarea. And this is the first recorded meeting of Barnabas and Saul in Acts. And it's a beautiful beginning to their friendship. Acts 9 puts it this way. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. They thought he was a spy. Barnabas didn't, though. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him to Tarsus. So Barnabas was there. Barnabas had helped him, and it's likely Barnabas helped him to get to know the apostles. And it's likely Barnabas is also helping him escape to Tarsus at this point. The next six years are silent uh, from, in terms of the book of Acts on the life of Saul. He's likely preaching in Syria and Cilicia from his home base of Tarsus. And again, we know this from the book to the Galatians in chapter 1. So the churches, know, they know of what Saul is doing. We'll get to that in Galatians. That he is preaching the gospel during this time. Galatians 1, 21 through 24 tells us this. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but they were hearing only. He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God in me. So Saul, still acting as a friend of Jesus, there in Tarsus, he's preaching the gospel, and it appears as though, there's, at least there's no report of anyone trying to kill him, <laughs> At this point. So who knows why. But he's able to do his gospel work there. Without obvious threat to his life. So what happens next? Well the gospel is going forth. And Barnabas is sent. To see what's going on. He goes to Antioch. He encourages them there. You remember that? And after he sees what's going on. He's like we need some help here. And he goes and he retrieves Saul from Antioch. And then they minister together. More friendship activity. Look at what's happening now. They're ministering together there at Antioch. And the church is blessed. Much success. Remember, it's the first. There's many people who come to the Lord and grow up in the Lord. And you, and you and I are the recipients of the name where the believers are first called Christians in this context. Acts 11 describes it this way. And this is about A.D. 43. I do think it's worth 
noting, and we'll get to it later, that sometime along the way here, it appears as though John Mark, Mark, has already written the Gospel of Mark. It, it appears though, as though Mark, the Gospel of Mark was likely written by A.D. 40, maybe a little later. So that's worth bearing in mind. Now those who were scattered after the persecution, back to Acts 11, that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So the gospel's going forth. Uh, the dispersion has taken place, and yet the gospel's going forth with success. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. So they know that Barnabas is a friend of Jesus, and they sent him out. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. So now we get a sense even deeper of what Barnabas is, is about and what he's like. He's able to spot the grace of God. We talked about this when we went through this text. And he really wants to encourage them to continue with the Lord. That's a mark of a true friend. He's someone who, also, who always wants to help us continue with the Lord. Going on, description is given of Barnabas, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. These are descriptions of what it means for someone to be a genuine Christian friend. They have to be this first. A good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, being able to encourage and spot and build others up in continuing with the Lord. Going on, the fruit of it is seen of his ministry. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Perhaps it was Barnabas' Levitical past and his camaraderie that he likely had when he, growing up in Cyprus as a, and becoming a, a Levite there. Uh, who knows, but he, he sensed, he knew, he understood that more, more, Good men were needed. Those who loved Jesus and who were committed to him. And he remembered, committed to Christ. And he remembered Saul. And he re certainly remembered his relationship with Saul. And the connection that he had made with Saul in Jerusalem when he helped him and he trusted him at that time. So next, this time frame here is probably occurring between 44 and 46 AD. This is where the Antioch church entrusts Barnabas and Saul the important ministry of taking financial relief to the elders in Judea. So this is occurring kind of during that year that they're ministering together. And the church is identifying them as trustworthy and as leaders. And they travel together with this wealth. It's a big deal. Now, the time frame is expanded because it likely took months to years for the Antioch church and the region there to gather the necessary financial relief that they were going to send. This famine under Claudius took place toward the end of this time frame in AD 46. And so it's likely some time that it took to gather all of this together. Acts 11 puts it this way. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. 
And so, again, we're seeing the, the fruitfulness of their genuine Christian friendship in that they are being entrusted with this very important ministry by the church, and they are able to go and to fulfill their ministry because today's text tells us that they did. So there in AD 46, all the events of Acts 12 occur prior to today's text. And we've been through Acts 12, coming up now to the end of Acts chapter 12. Remember, Herod has killed James, the brother of John. He's been persecuting the church because it pleased the Jews. He's imprisoned Peter, likely wanted to kill Peter and bring him out and kill him in public. But Peter is freed miraculously by the angel. And then he goes, and where does he go? To the church at Mary's house. And who is this Mary? She's the mother of John Mark, and, and she's a close relative of Barnabas uh, in some way, either cousin or perhaps uh, brother. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. We'll, we'll see there's a relationship there. There's a little bit of uncertainty in the Greek exactly what that relationship is. Peter's freed miraculously. He goes to the church there, and he tells them about it. Herod's eaten by worms. I'm going through all this because probably Saul and Barnabas are in the background involved with these events somehow, aware of these events somehow, because we know that John Mark, they brought with them from Jerusalem back to Antioch. So there are ties, and they're somehow involved in this in the background as they're doing their ministry of taking the financial relief to the elders in Judea. It seems necessary to assume that Barnabas and Saul were in and about these events during the course of their relief mission, especially given the John Mark connection. So what happens next? They returned from Jerusalem. This is about AD 46. Barnabas and Saul have returned to Antioch after being in Judea and probably in Jerusalem, probably went to Mary's house and brought John Mark with them, although perhaps John Mark had left Jerusalem and they met somewhere else. We don't know. But I think it's good to pause and think at this point about all the things that Saul and Barnabas have experienced together, particularly their mutual time together. And the Lord has really brought them through a lot from Saul being uh, distrusted and Barnabas helping him there and then Barnabas helping him escape when his life was in danger there in Jerusalem, um, likely helping him get to Caesarea so that he could get on the boat and go to Tarsus, and then uh, Barnabas going and getting him and bringing him there in that wonderful time of ministry that they had together for <coughs> at least a year or so there in Antioch, and then uh, they get this mission and they go together, they travel together. Think of all the travel things that they would have been through at that time and what it would have been like to travel on the roads at that time and the things that they would have faced, especially carrying all of that wealth together. So they have been doing ministry together and now they come back and they are trusted and they trust one another. This is genuine Christian friendship. They both are after the same thing. The glory of Christ obeying Christ and being made like Jesus together. That's what they're after. And so we see another example of the fruitfulness of genuine Christ Christian friendship when it says here, when they had fulfilled their ministry, they did not come back prematurely and they didn't go and do other things afterwards. As soon as their ministry was fulfilled, they went back to those who had commissioned them to report that they had completed their mission. They were faithful to their ministry. Notice it's called their ministry. Christian friendship will bring uh, individuals into shared ministry together. And they will do the work of God together in their friendship. They had a common ministry for the sake of Christ's church. And they fulfilled it together. 
This word fulfilled means to render full, to complete it. They brought the ministry to completion. It wasn't partially done. They didn't partially complete their mission. They continued in their work until they had obeyed their calling, until they had obeyed their calling. And this is an important aspect of the mutual support and strengthening that Christian friends offer to one another in their joint ministry is that they're able to fulfill the ministry. So this ministry, we're told here in the scriptures, is fulfilled through their joint effort together. I want us to note this, that Christian friendship encourages completion of the shared mutual calling that they often receive together, and it gives help to one another along the path of service to Christ. So they are working together. They encourage one another to complete the joint mission that they're given often, and they're becoming like Christ together. Iron sharpening iron, all those long carriage rides or horse rides or walks, I'm sure that those things bring the friction as living stones have to rest on Christ together. Commentary says, Barnabas and Saul returned to Antioch as soon as they had dispatched the business they were sent upon. When they had fulfilled their ministry, had paid in their money to the proper persons, and taken care about the due distribution of it to those for whom it was collected, they returned from Jerusalem to Antioch. Though they had a great many friends there, yet at present their work lay at Antioch. And where our business is, there we should be, and no longer from it than is requisite. When a minister is called abroad upon any service, when he has fulfilled that ministry, he ought to remember that he has work to do at home, which wants him there and calls him thither. This is their faithful service, not only completing their mission, but reporting back to the church when they were done. So what does the text, today's text tell us next? They brought John Mark from Jerusalem with them, it says, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now, <clears throat> we know that Mary, John Mark's brother, was a close relative of Barnabas. So here we see Barnabas and Saul beginning the work of training the next generation of leaders. This is another example of the fruitfulness of genuine Christian friendship. Even though they would disagree over John Mark later, and it would be a very sharp disagreement, here at this time we see more of the fruitfulness of Christian friendship on display. Now, let's look at Colossians, talk about Colossians 4.10 a little bit. We looked at this last time we passed through about John Mark. Colossians 4.10, so the book of Colossians was written about uh, A.D. 58. Okay, so this is some years later uh, after this particular episode is occurring around A.D. 46. So this is written about 12 years later by, who, by Paul. He's called Paul by this time. And he says, if he comes to you, welcome him. So this is Paul writing to the church at Colossae about John Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark. And he says to him, if he comes to you, welcome him. Okay? So there's, there's been some sort of reconciliation that has taken place between Paul and John Mark at this point in time. Now, about this idea, he was either the cousin of Barnabas, which it would have meant that John Mark's mother or husband was the sibling of Barnabas' mom or dad, if they're cousins. But the... New, the, the King James calls him the nephew of Barnabas, which may be accurate. So either cousins or nephew. Okay, so either John Mark is the nephew 
of Barnabas or they are cousins. It's, it's not entirely clear. But this family relationship is worth noting. And we have to ask ourselves, did it possibly contribute to the contention that they had with one another? Um, the commentary says about this whole situation with Barnabas and Saul, when they went to Antioch, they took with them John, whose surname was Mark, at whose mother's house they had that meeting for prayer, which we read of in verse 12. It is pro probable that Barnabas lodged there and perhaps Paul with him while they were at Jerusalem. And it was that, occasion, it was that that occasioned the meeting there at that time. Wherever Paul was, he would have some good work doing. And their intimacy in that family while they were at Jerusalem occasioned their taking a son of that family with them when they returned to be trained up under them and employed by them in the service of the gospel. So here Matthew Henry's leaning towards the idea that they would have been in Jerusalem, they would have been housed there at Mary's place, given the close family ties. Going on with Henry, educating young men for the ministry and entering them into it is a very good work for elder ministers to take care of and of good service to the rising generation. Now, we're going to look at, over the next two chapters of the book of Acts, the first missionary journey, where Barnabas and Saul are together and ministering together that entire time. But John Mark did not stay with them that entire time. And we see at the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey, which we'll look at from the end of Acts 15 through until uh, uh, much of the book, uh, much of the cha uh, chapter 18 of the book of Acts, that Paul and Silas are together there. And so we get some, some sad words. I don't know about you, but this is sad to me. That Acts 15, verses 35 through 39, we see that there is a sharp contention between Saul and Barnabas. And they're disagreeing over whether to take John Mark with them or not. And Saul doesn't want to take him because he had left the prior missionary effort. But Barnabas does want to take him. And so they part ways. Now, this is something that should sadden us. Now, yet, of course, we see God's great sovereignty in this, and uh, in many ways we see multiplied ministry. And there's, there's not really any sort of direct commentary from Scripture that either Saul or Barnabas are, are wrong about how they're trying to weigh this out. But just this sad parting is given to us. And it, it may well be that there's a subtle curiosity in the author, Luke, about the family ties between Barnabas and John Mark may be playing a role in this. And so, in any, in any case, they're not together anymore. And later we see John Mark is to be welcomed, so we know in the future there's goodness and kindness between Paul and John Mark, and Barnabas is mentioned in that same text in Colossians 4.10 in A.D. 58. And that's the last, that's the latest mention of Barnabas. But that's all that's said about him. He's just mentioned. There's nothing else said about Barnabas there by Paul. Now, what else do we know about Barnabas outside of the book of Acts? First of all, I want to say this. Barnabas is not mentioned again in the book of Acts. And that saddens me. That should sadden us to wonder what happened in their relationship. But he is mentioned later 
he is mentioned later. Now, Barnabas and Saul, the first missionary journey, is from 47 to 49, approximately A.D., and the second missionary journey is A.D. 49 to 51. So the last mention of Barnabas in the book of Acts is A.D. 49. So hold on to that, because as we look at New Testament references, we'll have a sense of what unfolds over time. So Galatians is written about A.D. 49, and so it's right around this same time that they've parted that Paul is writing to the Galatians. And in the first part of Galatians, in chapter 1, he mentions Barnabas twice, but that's just referencing him by history, what they had been through together, and this was about what they had done prior to their parting. And then in Galatians 1.13, Paul writes something negative about Barnabas, and you recall this before when I asked you to remember that phrase, even Barnabas. And this is Galatians 1.13 where it says, even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Remember, Peter wouldn't eat uh, with the, the Gentiles who had not become Jews because of the folks that had come from James, the Judaizers. And even Barnabas is carried away. So something happens here in approximately A.D. 49 where they part ways and, and Paul is willing to write something negative like this about Barnabas to the church at Galatia. And... Then in A.D. 55, there's this brief reference in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Approximately 55 is when 1 Corinthians was written. So this is about six years later. Paul says, is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from work? So there's some knowledge that Barnabas is also refraining from work. Um, Now, is that based on their experience when they were there at Corinth before well, no, they didn't go to Corinth together. So we don't, I don't really know the background here of what's going on with Barnabas. But he mentions Barnabas, so at least he's keeping up with Barnabas. And their friendship shows up there. Their relationship shows up there. And then I've already mentioned Colossians 4.10, where Barnabas is mentioned by Paul. And uh, Paul being reconciled to Mark. And so <clears throat> we get an overview, I think, here of the relationship between Saul and Barnabas that becomes Paul and Barnabas. And it looks beautiful and fruitful for quite some time. And it appears it's because of their shared love for Christ and their mutual devotion to Christ's kingdom and to becoming like Jesus Christ. That's genuine Christian friendship. And it appears as though something may have gotten in there. And maybe they weren't sharing that same friendship anymore. Now, it could be perhaps instead of that, they just had different callings. Maybe at that point in time, they just had different callings and they weren't together any longer. So what can we learn from this today about our lives and what is true friendship? And I think we need to go back to Spurgeon's ideas at the beginning and acknowledge that there's, first of all, there's only one true faithful friend, brothers and sisters, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he is the only one who is with perfect devotion, loyal to that which deserves loyalty, Jesus Christ alone. And so we must start there and ask ourselves, have we been brought into new life with Christ? Have we been united with him. This is where it all starts. And in that union with him, have we embraced being his ambassadors? Have we embraced being his prophets, his priests, and his kings in the earth? 
Have we embraced His will for our lives? And in that, associated with that, being sanctified. The joy of sanctification. Being changed together as we do His will together. Having His kingdom before us. His goals before us. And even more importantly, who He is before us. Because we are being made like Him together. This is the will of God, our sanctification. And this is where true friendship lies. If we have this together, mutual love and devotion to Jesus Christ, given to us by Him in appreciation for who He really is, going after what He desires us to be involved in. This is obedience and transformation. Those are the two goals that we have as Christians. Doing His will and being made like Him. Now, what are the fruits of this? Some of these things are demonstrated to us in today's text and in the consideration of the life friendship of Paul and Barnabas. First of all, we see the ability to complete things. Genuine Christian friendship will often lead to a coming together around a shared goal that God has given to Christian friends. And in that, all of the things that go along with encouragement and strengthening one another to do the Lord's will. So Christian friendship, genuine Christian friendship, where Jesus is the focus, what Jesus wants is the focus, being like Christ is the focus, will lead to often beautiful vision, mission, and completion of wonderful things together in this life. Another word that comes to mind is fruition. There will be fruition. And when I think of Christian friendship, each married person should be able to say this. Who is your best friend here in this world? And, and we must say as, a married, as married couples, when we consider life together, when we are going after what Christ wants us to do, when we're seeking together being like Christ, this is when we grow the closest with one another. This is when we experience the fruitfulness and the joy of being married together. So Christian friendship, genuine Christian friendship, is often best and most displayed in marriage, in Christian marriage. The next thing that we see in terms of fruitfulness is discipleship and evangelism. We see Barnabas and Saul involved in the proclamation of the gospel together. They were involved in telling people the good news of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, crucified for your sins so your sins can be washed away, resurrected and ascended unto the glory of his kingship and his kingdom. They preached the gospel and they discipled. They taught people how to submit to Christ, how to love his word, how to do his will, how to become learners, discipleship, learner, how to be learners of Jesus Christ, becoming like him and serving him. We see this in their lives together, and we see it particularly in the life of John Mark. Church growth is another thing that we see as a fruit of genuine Christian friendship. We see this in their lives together, especially in that year of ministry together at Antioch. We see the church growing there are other things that we could discuss about genuine Christian friendship, its foundations, its goals, and its fruits. 
But I hope this will encourage you and motivate you to look to Christ and to learn about being that kind of friend. Now, we do need to talk about counterf counterfeit friendship. Um, we might get a taste of that in the life of Saul and Barnabas uh, because if there's any loyalty that you have that is higher than your loyalty to Jesus Christ, that will get in the way of genuine Christian friendship. It will get in the way of genuine Christian friendship. So it's worth, as an a, um, application request from the preacher, that you would ask the Lord, Lord, do I have any loyalties in my life that are higher than my loyalty to you? to your glory, to your kingdom, to doing your will in my life and to becoming like you along the way. Now, this is different than our sin patterns and our sinfulness and our selfishness and our unbelief and our pride that can get in the way of things. These underlying sins certainly can lead to misplaced loyalties and are associated with it. But misplaced loyalties are really important. And when we're here together, you even see how we take the Lord's Supper together, where the point here is that we are one family, brothers and sisters. We are the siblings of Jesus Christ. We are in Christ. We have one Father, one Lord, one baptism, one faith, and one shared and united goal together as the people of God. And while the family is so critical to God's plan for advancing His kingdom, if we perhaps like Barnabas did, I don't know. But if we do have loyalty to our own family that is, then it, that is greater than loyalty to Jesus Christ, then we are no longer living out the complementary communication, complementary relationship between the church and the family. Does that make sense? We have to watch out for that. And so what other things can be the source of counterfeit friendships? Well, when we have shared goals that are not in the priorities that God gives to us, and in today's world there's a lot of things like that. Maybe it's the college you went to. I brainstormed a little bit. Um, you'll think of other things. Maybe it's uh, a common profession. Uh, maybe it's you know, a football team. Maybe it's sports. There are a lot of things in our world today. Uh, maybe it's raising your children. Right? You know, a lot of churches cease to exist after the parents have raised their children. This building we're in, uh, sadly, is kind of an example of that. Now, we're the beneficiaries of that, but that's my understanding of what happened, is that in many ways, once the children had grown, the friendships were open. So what are the counterfeits and the foundation counterfeits that the world offers? And like Spurgeon says, what will happen if we lean upon those things? Didn't he call it like leaning upon a spear that will pierce our souls. We look at Judas, do we not, as an example of counterfeit friendship. Do we think that Judas moved into that as a plant, as a dispatched agent, knowledgeable in his mind of his infiltration? Maybe, but probably not. It looks like he thought he was a good friend, and he became a traitor. And this is a warning to all of us to examine why we are involved in our friendships and do our friendships flow from Christ and are they for him and even what is friendship we have associations we have uh, connections in this world but as Christians 
Christian friendship is because of Jesus Christ, because of who he is and what he has done for us and the life that he has called us to live in service to him as we love one another doing that together. Succeeding and failing in the missions that he gives to us together and becoming like Christ together along the way. So beware of counterfeit friendship and recall that we can get caught up in those things. Any of us can, right? We don't always just want to cast ourselves as the good guy in the text, right? We have to be aware of our own sin and our own flesh and our own desires, our own kingdom goals for our own little kingdoms that we have. All of us, all of us, all of us have this. And we have to let go of those things and cling to Christ and his kingdom and his goal and his will for us. So hopefully this will be... Um, an occasion for pondering genuine Christian friendship more deeply for each one of us. And I do commend to you the sermon uh, from Charles Spurgeon. It was, it was helpful to me. And uh, may we each take time to uh, consider ourselves, our relationship with the only one who is a true friend, the Lord Jesus Christ, and how we can be more like, more like him and go forward in genuine Christian friendships, experiencing all the joys and the fruits of this in our lives. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we rejoice that You, O God, sent Jesus Christ, put on flesh, suffered and died for us. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for demonstrating genuine Christian friendship to us. We desire, Lord Jesus Christ, to be like You, that we would walk and carry our cross as genuine Christian friends with one another. Being like you, serving you, accomplishing, doing and accomplishing your will. Oh Lord Jesus Christ, we beseech you to pour out your Holy Spirit upon us that we would be looking to you, considering you and your glory and your commands to us and the great joy of becoming like you in the process of worshiping you and serving you during our lives. Oh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, grant to us genuine Christian friendships, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.